If you think about the buyer's journey of a design engineer, problem first, product last, really describes very accurately how design engineers go about solving problems and ultimately buying a component. And in some cases they may not, they may just completely redesign the design, the board or whatever it is, and there may be no product. But unless component makers understand this fundamental idea that you have to help the design engineer solve the problem first, and it may or may not lead to a product discussion, then you're never going to get in on the conversation. Connect. Influence. Optimize. You're listening to The Channel Channel, a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components. Brought to you by the ECIA, the Electronic Component Industry Association. Working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel. Welcome to The Channel Channel. This is David Loftus, CEO of ECIA, and host of this session of the Channel Channel, a podcast sponsored by the Electronic Components Industry Association, covering topics that are important for participants of the electronic supply chain. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Graham Kilshaw, CEO of Lectrix Group. Lectrix is an ECIA service partner as a unique full service marketing and strategy firm. Welcome, Graham. Yeah, good morning, David. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, Graham has assisted with many of our members' businesses and presented at the ECI Executive Conference. He's also worked with ERA and Women in Electronics. I guess, uh, opening question, do you enjoy working with associations? No, David, they're terrible. I hate it. <laughs> of course, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I, I really do. Um, I think on a couple of levels, you know, we were talking just before we hit record here about the difference between sort of connecting with the virtual audience and connecting with the real audience. And I really do miss that opportunity to get face to face, for example, with the, the ECI members at the executive conference. The last one, of course, was 2019. You know, it was a real highlight for me, just the, the ambience and the ability to connect. I think the associations are, for me, they're an essential part of business. It gives me an opportunity to connect just like it does you know, the manufacturer members, the distributor members. So yeah, it's very high on my list of things to do every year. Super. Hey, so unless uh, most of our listeners are half asleep, they've probably noticed that you have an interesting accent. Where did you grow up? Well, the cheeky answer I sometimes give people is that I grew up in South Philly, not North Philly. And once <laughs> somebody said to me, oh, I thought so, I recognize that which kind of dropped my joke a little bit. But no, in reality, I, I grew up in England until my early 30s. And I met a beautiful American girl in a London pub. And the rest is history. We got married here in the mid 90s. My kids were born here. But um, I grew up in a very small town in England called Boston, which most people would react to. There's a Boston in England. Well, just Google it, read the Wikipedia page, and you'll see it has a tremendous connection to the US. It's really where the Pilgrim Fathers started their journey. So that's my old hometown, but my hometown now is Philly. Oh, that, that's a great fun fact. Hey, uh, you've had a full career in a wide range of businesses. Uh, care to share just a bit about your experience? Sure. You know, briefly, I, I guess I was was lucky, as you say, to have a rich and uh, varied career. In my 20s, I found myself working 
two steps below Rupert Murdoch at the uh, Wapping newspaper plant, it's called, in uh, East London. And I was a uh, junior marketing manager for a couple of his newspapers. The one primarily I worked on was News of the World, which was shuttered a few years ago because of some pretty nasty practices by their journalists and he closed it down. But it was a tremendous experience working at the pace of a newspaper with constant deadlines, very late days. And of course, in England, the drinking habits of the journalists, just keeping up with those guys was, was the biggest challenge of the lot, I suppose. <laughs> you know, I could do that in my 20s, but not now. Yeah, but, that, was a great, that was a great life experience. <laughs> While I was working there, I ran into the guys who were running Euro Disney in the UK market. And they said, hey, we kind of like what you're doing. Do you want to come and work for us? And so I jumped at the chance. And that was a time where people remember back in the early 90s when Euro Disney was really failing. So it was a big challenge to, for the whole team to turn that around. There was a, you know, a UK manager that was me. And then there was another manager for each of the major European countries. But again, a, a culture completely different from newspapers, but you know, in very high energy, very high paced. But it paid off. In the end, they opened up a New York office to promote Euro Disney to the American market. And I was very fortunate to be offered the job of running that piece of the business for them. So that, that was a great time. And then I bought the family business, my wife's family's business, which was originally called Item Media, which was a trade magazine for the electronics industry. And we still own two publications in the industry as well, one for the world of EMI and one for the world of thermal management. But you know, like a lot of media marketing, it went through uh, tremendous changes several years ago. And, and out of that, Electrix was born about, about five years ago. Super. And, and you uh, founded Electrix with a focus on the electronics market. Yes, exactly. You know, obviously we wanted to leverage our 20 years of experience in the electronics industry and kind of see where would that would go. But, but understanding that media was was not going to be the sole revenue source anymore. It just had changed. Um, so interestingly, we, we did quite a bit of research with our existing clients and we just said, you know, help us understand where you need help in marketing. And the answer very frustratingly, David, was everything. I said, really? <laughs> you can't even narrow it down. But it really came down, the more we asked the question and asked the question, it really came down to, we spend all this money on marketing, but we don't understand how that drives the business. We don't understand how that drives sales leads or purchase orders. So that's really been our focus for the last five years is kind of connecting the dots between if you're going to spend $10 or $100,000, where does that impact the top line and hopefully the bottom line? So that's been our lens, if you like, for electrics over the last five years. Yeah, I'd say I struggled with that myself, running sales and marketing teams. You'd always look at how do you find that closed loop to be able to understand what the ROI is on those marketing dollars. Yeah, we used to look at it like a clock dial. You know, we could probably get to about 11 o'clock and guess that the last hour on the clock was actually getting us there. But these days, as you know, we, we might explore a little bit today, is you can actually make the full loop now. You can actually connect the spend to not just what we call vanity metrics of like how many people looked at my ad, how many people 
you know, went to my website, but actual purchase orders, specific customers, dollar values, it, it's all doable now. Um, and, and that's really where we're focused. Super. Hey, uh, you've spoken uh, several times on the concept of problem first, product last marketing. Can you describe that a little bit to the listeners? Sure. Um, so this phrase came to us just about a year ago. Um, I don't quite remember how. And oh, sure, it, it has a little bit of shock value to it. If you're a marketing company and, and you're telling your customers, guess what? We're going to put your product last. We kind of like the shock value because we're supposed to be marketers. Of that, course. That's a good hook. But there's, uh, <laughs> there's some real truth to it. If, um, if you think about the, the buyer's journey of a design engineer, problem first, product last really describes very accurately how design engineers go about solving problems and ultimately buying a component. And in some cases, they may not. They may just completely redesign the design, the board or whatever it is, and there may be no product. But unless component makers understand this fundamental idea that you have to help the design engineer solve the problem first, and it may or may not lead to a product discussion, then you're never going to get in on the conversation. If you're just waiting for the RFQ, you're going to be looking at a very small sales funnel. So this is our this is actually how we approach that that earlier question of how do you connect the marketing dollars to the to the uh, uh, to the sales dollars? You have to kind of get this whole idea of the buyer's journey of a design engineer, and so we call it problem first, product last. So it's a really interesting concept. Um, how do you work with the components industry and, and their marketing teams to help them adjust to that kind of process? Yeah, it's a good question and. You know, there's obviously some inertia there because I think there's been this tendency and you see it in multiple places of product first. So there's this inertia problem of, first of all, for the, for the, for the client or the, the manufacturer or distributor, or in some cases, even a rep firm, and we work with all three, um, to sort of like sort of abandon that idea of like, well, if you're going to write a, a problem first article, like a white paper, some of them initially will look at it and go, well, it doesn't mention my product. And we, we say, yes, of course it doesn't because that's not what the engineer is looking for at the beginning of this buyer's journey. Um, and so the, the way to sort of break it down that typically if you Google buyer's journey, that's an accepted marketing concept for those people mm -hmm. listening who've not heard that term before, Google buyer's journey. And you'll see there are different versions of it. Um, there are essentially three stages awareness, consideration, and decision. So when we educate our customers on that, and I'll describe it in a second, that's generally how they come around. And it usually ends up being a bit of an aha moment. They go, yeah, that's exactly how our customers operate. So awareness, consideration, decision, for those who've not come across buyer's journey before, sort of goes like this. I'll give you an example. So you have a design engineer designing a board. Um, He's looking at the board and realizes, okay, and maybe he's using some EDA software. There's a problem on this board. Let's say it's a heat problem to make it simple for everybody. At this stage, he's not really looking for a product. He just knows that there's a heat problem. He's not immediately and go, okay, well, I'm just going to go buy a heat sink or a fan or whatever. First, he wants to understand the problem. Okay. That's just the awareness stage. The second stage is consideration. The consideration could be, I'm just going to redesign the board. 
there isn't going to be any product purchase. I just did something that was, was wrong and I'm going to fix it and I'll go back into the design software and I'm just going to change the design. It could be that he's not going to completely redesign it or she and that it's going to require some additional components. So we've gone through the first steps. And if you think problem first, product last, typically, you know, we're, we're talking conceptually, of course, and, you know, in the real world, this might bounce around a little bit. It's not always quite as linear at this, but to understand the concept, it's good to look at it this way. That second stage of consideration could or could not lead to thinking about an extra component going on the board. The final stage is decision. The decision in this example be, could be the engineer says, okay, well, all right, I can solve this. It's gonna take a fan and a heat sink, and maybe I need some thermal interface materials to get all of this loaded on top of the chip. This is the stage where they start looking for product vendors who can help solve the problem. Maybe it's off the shelf, maybe it's custom. So as you can see in this buyer's journey process, the product thinking comes last. And once you start building marketing campaigns and train salespeople to think and operate that way, it just creates a much, much bigger sales funnel at the end of the day. So that's how we go through a process of education. You know, most clients get it pretty quick and they go, yeah, of course, it makes sense. I don't know why we didn't do that before. Um, sometimes it takes a little while to coach the inertia out of them or, or beat the inertia out of them, you know, depending on the case. But, but that's how we go about it. That's That's really interesting. And I can look back at my career. I think that uh, three out of four of the semiconductor companies that I um, that, that I worked for probably did not understand that very well. One did. So my uh, company Xilinx had a model they called AKA model. Okay. And it's almost exactly the same. Awareness, knowledge, adoption. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. Same, same thing. But I'm, I'm curious. So if you look across the companies that you work with across our industry, how many do get that? already and how many do you think are, right. are are really oblivious yeah i think it's we're definitely at that stage now even compared to two years ago david where i think you can call it an emerging an awareness or an emerging trend um and you know generally speaking i'm, I'm not here to slate anybody um but if you were to look in general terms at places like LinkedIn's a good example and look at the uh, number of product announcements on LinkedIn. But then the key thing there, the really interesting thing I find is if you go look at the likes on that announcement of a new capacitor or resistor or a switch or an LED, have a look at how many likes there are not because it's usually a small number and then go look at who's actually liking it. What I find is that if there are 10 likes, Eight of them come from the company who's selling the product, and that includes the reps. But there's very few customers, with some exceptions, who are actually saying, hey, this is great news. This is great information. It's all very internal, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then you can go look at um, the newsletters that come from companies, very product-focused. Um, look at the advertising in the trade magazines, even, even some of the blog posts, which are supposed to be content. But the trend is really emerging, you know, and I'll, and I'll point out a couple of companies that I think are really sort of grasping this and driving with it. I think Eaton, for example, and Little Fuse have got some very problem first approaches to how they're engaging the market. 
You know, if you look at what they put on LinkedIn, it, for example, or if you sign up for their newsletter, you'll see kind of a nice bounce there because you know, what, what we might talk about in a minute or do is we're not saying no product at all. We're just saying it comes later in the sequence. And mm -hmm. th these two I've noticed seem to have a, a pretty nice, and there are plenty of others as well. Those are just two that, that I've happened to notice recently. So yeah, it's definitely an emerging trend, but I think we've got some ways to go. And a good benchmark for this, if you go look at some other industries, and the two that I often take a look at just to give myself a sort of a health check, if you like, on like, well, where is the components industry on this today is the pharmaceutical industry and the software industry, particularly the SaaS guys like SAP, for example. If you look at what, you know, how they go to market, if you look at pharmaceutical companies like Merck, who's big in my neck of the woods in Philadelphia, it's very much a problem focused approach to what, what it is they're actually trying to accomplish. You don't actually see a lot of product discussed in the earlier messages. They definitely get there and, and clearly they sell their product, but those are often good benchmarks to look at to see how are we doing versus other industries. Interesting observations, uh, maybe a slightly different tack on this. Do you notice that there's a difference between companies that are more product line driven versus more sales and marketing driven? Because mm. it seems to me that a lot of companies that I've worked for that are product line driven, the marketing is almost like a service arm to the product line. And the product line wants to throw their product releases over the fence to the marketing and have them put that product messaging, messaging out there versus a company that's more sales and marketing driven tends to think of it more from the customer's view rather yeah. than from the product line view. And, and there's different strengths between those two groups within a lot of companies. I agree, David. I think it's a good observation. I think I've seen two or three typical characteristics of companies that tend to go product first versus companies that go problem first. Number one is, is size and scale. You know, if you're an Eaton or a Little Fuse, you know, you've got the marketing team and usually the depth of experience and skill of the marketing team to sort of recognize this concept. That's an obvious one. The other one, I think, is really when you look at more of the small to mid-sized companies, what you tend to find, and I find this, I would say, at least once a month talking to a potential new customer, let's say. So if you take the small, mid-sized businesses and the component maker side of the business, what I typically see is the C team. Usually the founder is somebody who came from a larger organization. He's a double E or she's a double E. They're technical, okay? The sales team, who usually gets hired second, if you think about how these companies emerge and grow, they're also double E's and technical. They have to be to talk to the customer. Marketing is usually the third part. If you put aside production administration and accounting for a second, when you look at the marketing team, the marketing team is usually not technical. They're skilled in marketing, but they're generally not double E's who are doing marketing in a lot of cases. So you have to kind of think about the balance of power in those companies. Who's making the decision about what goes exactly into right. marketing? The C team and the sales team already have the power in this organization to say what's important, but they're generally thinking product, not problem. And so the marketing team is just executing what the senior team feels is correct. And I see this happen a lot. And that's part of our education with clients in that realm, in the, in the SMB piece of the business. It's really a, a balance of power question. So th those are some of the, the characteristics that we see. So you not only have the marketing teams within the manufacturers, but there's really a shared responsibility for marketing 
in our industry, given the different sales channels, you've got distribution, you've got reps touching the customers as well. How do you think that that affects the challenge of this concept? Yeah, it's obviously a very key part of it. And and I think there are really two key reasons why, let's just call them component marketers, whether they're with the distributor or with the manufacturer, or in some cases with the rep fund, you know, why they seem to be stuck in this product first mode. Actually, let me just jump ahead. So these sort of two reasons. Number one, we call it the hot potato effect. So there's this friendly disagreement, let's say, irrespective of what's in the contract between the manufacturer and the distributor and the reps, is whose responsibility is it to generate the real high quality sales leads? I'm not talking about CAD file downloads or data sheet downloads. They're a little further up the funnel for me, but when I talk about real high quality sales leads, we think of them as active buyers. Who wants to buy this category of component? When are they buying it? Where are they and who are they? We do the who, what, where, when. And this hot potato effect is, you know, there's an understanding in the agreements in the channel of who should be doing it. But when it comes to putting it into practice, we don't see it actually playing out the way it was originally thought. And that's one of the problems. Um, uh, in fact, if you talk to some manufacturers, especially where they have a really high percentage of their sales coming through distribution, there's almost, I hate to say it, but like a complete abdication of the marketing responsibility to the distributors. Mm. I know that sounds critical. It's not meant to be. I think it's just the way that it's evolved. Um, You know, if you look at some of the manufacturers, their marketing plan is is essentially the co-op plan. That's it. It's all through them. But what really should be happening, I believe, is that the the manufacturers should take the responsibility. They know the customers. They know the the best applications for the components that they're in. They should really be devising the strategy and then playing that out through the distributors. I think it's sort of going the other way, and that's compounding this product-first approach. So that's the first thing. Um, The second thing is, is, again, it's kind of an inertia thing. I think the channel partners, most often the distributors, they'll often follow the lead of the manufacturers are saying, hey, we've got this NPI in Q1, Q2, Q3. That becomes the discussion. And that's what's important to the manufacturer. So the distributor naturally just sort of follows suit. And I think we just got to sort of backpedal a little bit here and start thinking about problem first if, you know, if we're going to address this in the channel going forward. Okay, I, I understand that. Um, at the same time, I, I don't think you're saying that manufacturers, distributors, and reps should completely abandon the product message altogether. Right. Yeah, not at all. It's a question of timing. It's a question of timing in the marketing campaign, and it's a question of timing in the sales conversation. Um, It's really just about understanding where does the product conversation fit in the process? As we say, problem first, product last, but we're not saying no product message ever. It's just that, as you can see, if you think about that buyer's journey concept, the product discussion, whether we're talking about the marketing plan or the sales conversation, and obviously the two are tied together, it just comes later on in that buyer's journey, later on in the marketing campaign, later on in the customer conversation. Let me give you an example. And, you know, we're going to talk about the webinar in a little bit where we can make this a bit more visual, you know, but a typical marketing campaign we would build for a client based on this concept might have three stages of content in it, David. So stage one, we're sending out an email 
to a registration page for a white paper. That's going to be problem first, problem oriented, how to solve the heat problems on the board. Okay, not really talking about product, but clearly sponsored by supplier X. And that'll, that'll tend to match the awareness stage. The second stage of content still is going to be very problem oriented. Um, it's going to focus a little bit more on considering the different ways of solving the particular problem. And the stage three piece of content, now we get into product because this is the decision phase. So now we might be putting out a sales brochure. So it's definitely there. It's just we don't lead with it. That's all. And the, the net effect is, well, the simple answer is the pipelines are so much bigger. Um, if you think about it, you know, if, if you if your marketing campaign is completely product oriented, you've got to hit that customer right at the time when they're thinking about buying that type of product, when they have the problem, when they have the need and when they're in buying mode. You know, that's a real narrow window to hit. And so consequently, the sales funnels really pretty small. It's good quality leads if they respond. So you think, oh, it's great. The people who reacted are exactly the people we want, but they're missing so much. When you take the problem first approach, now you're getting in on the conversation with clients much earlier. You're talking to more clients. Um, you're presenting yourself as a problem solving partner. And so the funnel gets bigger. Um, you know, a good way to, I think, to think about this is you've probably heard this phrase a million times. If only the customer had brought us in on the design conversation earlier, we could have solved it faster and saved them a ton of money. You must have heard that, you know, a thousand times at least, right? And that's really all it is. You know, we're trying to position our clients earlier in the design conversation. That's super. Hey, um, it, now that you guys are uh, successfully pushing this message, it, it becomes a trend with more and more companies. How do you think the pandemic has affected the trend? Is it more important now than ever that this solution or problem first? Yeah. It, it, it has had an effect and actually in a really big way. Um, think about it like this, you know, pre-pandemic, the majority of sales and marketing dollars was really based around T&E, travel to customers, trade shows, customer visits. Well, obviously that's all off the table with the pandemic. Um, so it essentially removed the traditional outlets where the message and the conversation was typically product first. So think about what the typical rep visit to a customer would entail. It's probably talking about NPIs for a good part of it. You know, and I know obviously very skilled salespeople know that that's not the way to lead. I'm not saying for a minute, everybody goes in and just pitches product for a minute, but, but generally speaking, that would end up being the focus of that, that meeting. Think about trade show booths. Visually, they're very product centric. And the discussions is there are salespeople in the booth, naturally. Some companies will put engineers in there as well, but that's more often than not, you know, a product centric conversation, but that's all gone. So obviously it's been replaced with webinars and Zoom meetings. Um, so what's happened there, which I think is really socially interesting in our industry, when there isn't a cost essentially for people to attend those webinars and Zoom meetings, this is what I'm seeing. The salespeople can now easily bring in the engineering teams into those conversations with customers. You're just adding them to the Zoom invite, piece of cake, right? So whereas in the past, the engineers typically would not travel 
to customer visits and trade shows as much as they can now with a virtual meeting, now the conversations become a lot more design problem oriented. And it's really had, is it impacting this trend towards the, you know, the, the problem first oriented discussions. I find personally find that very socially interesting. And I hope companies don't abandon that once we get past this pandemic and, you know, keep your engineering teams in the customer conversation. I think that's, that's the message. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's a tremendous paradigm shift for the industry here over the last year. Hey, uh, you mentioned seminars. Uh, I've had the privilege and the ACI team of uh, participating in some impressive seminars that are webinars that you guys have done. Thank you. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about some upcoming events? Yeah. Um, so as we've seen in the discussion, you know, today, this, this approach is all about being able to connect the marketing activity and the marketing spend, you know, back to the purchase orders and the customer names. And, and that's always kind of been hard to do in our industry. But really these days, David, it shouldn't be. The tools are there. It just takes a little bit of strategy, some discipline, and that key thing about understanding how design engineers buy. And the best way to really see how this plays out in reality and examples, I think, is, is to put on a webinar and give people some visual examples um, and kind of walk them through the process a little bit. So I think it's March 19th, ECI and Electrics are getting together and, and we're going to put on a webinar that shows people exactly how this problem first product last plays out. You know, they'll be able to see examples of campaigns. We'll give them some practical examples of companies that they probably know, you know, they can down the slide, slides. And, uh, and we've also put together, you were asking earlier about, you know, how do we, how do we help companies move from product first to problem first? So we've also created a discussion guide. It's a one sheet that will be available at the webinar. Um, and it's all the information is on the ECIANow.org website. So you'll be able to download it from there as well. But the discussion guide is to help companies themselves move the, move the ball along from, okay, if we're gonna shift from product first to problem first, what's the internal discussion that needs to happen? So there'll be a discussion guide with the webinar too. And I think it's uh, Jan 19th, check the ECIA website. Super. Well, look forward to that, Graham. Hey, uh, thanks so much for your time and insights today, Graham. Thank really you. great conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, and again, the associations are a very sort of key to us. So I look forward to doing more of this down the road, David, too. Thanks for your time. Fantastic. We'll look forward to it, too. Okay, well, that's a wrap for today. I hope you'll all join us for our next Channel Channel interview. Thanks so much for your time today to join today's podcast. And we hope all of you and your families are staying safe. <laughs>